3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, welcome to Wednesday Breakfast. Before we start the show, we would like to acknowledge that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Burung people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay respect to Elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation people in the on face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. And with that, we shall get start to the, the show. show. So it is um, October the 2nd. Yes. It's a Wednesday. Yes. That's why we're here. <laughs> <laughs> You've got Edwin and Rob in the studio and new broadcaster. Good morning, Lois. Good morning. Ooh, let me turn your mic on. That would help. Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? <laughs> Good, thank you. Um, and uh, Lois, uh, I suppose Rob and I have kind of seen you hang around, you know, the station for a few weeks now. Usually with 3CR processes, you, you slowly kind of inaugurate yourself into, <laughs> into the uh, morning shows. Can you let us know... Why have you got involved? What's what's your story? Sure. Um, well, I got involved because I wanted to volunteer at a, a news-based community radio station. And in Melbourne, you can't really go past 3CR. There's a lot of great music community radio stations. Um, and another reason is that I'm studying journalism at the moment. So it's really great to um, to do something practical in the community that's, that's issues-based mm. as well, because at uni we... Our course is, is really geared towards commercial news, so it's pretty refreshing to be here at 3CR. Mm, absolutely. That's nice, getting some, like, uh, literally alternative news. Yeah, quite literally. <laughs> <laughs> and are there any um, radio issues, or uh, not even radio issues, that you're kind of more speared towards or interested in? Yeah, definitely. I'm really interested in um, in workers' rights, especially foreign workers on temporary visas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm also interested in how the climate crisis is communicated in the media, and um, and direct action is definitely interesting. Oh, funky. And what are you most excited for, for joining on 3CR Wednesday Breakfast? Um, I'm excited for alternative news and, and lots of great interviews. Great. Sounds, sounds, sounds like you're in the right place. Sounds you're in exactly <laughs> the right place. Um, so with that also, I, I suppose we have a quick discussion about your week. How's your week been? My, my, my week been? Oh, I've had like a... Oh, I've had a possum burrowing inside the walls of my flat, which hasn't been great. And so it's been like, you can hear it getting stuck in the walls. So it's been really frustrating trying to sleep. Oh. Um, yeah, it's not been a great week. But it's not a great time. Not a great time. For me, all the possum. But <laughs> oh. uh, Well, I've spent, I've spent, this is very boring. I'm sorry, guys, whoever's listening to this, but I've spent the entire weekend just studying. Oh. Uh, start, Saturday started and ended with me just on the computer, just being like, <laughs> tip tap, tip tap, tip tap. Mm-hmm. I'm mm. convinced. I'm convinced that computers make us slower, and less productive. I think they do. I think there's yeah. something good when you write something out. You definitely. Mm. You're more concise. You're more concise, and you're more like. Um, you're like, that's that's it. That's it. I'm not going to try and edit that. Mm. <laughs> I'm just going to mm. send that off into the void. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah. Anyway, it's interesting to hear that you're studying journalism. I know. Um, when when I came to 3CR, we were talking about journalism and media degrees and stuff like that, and they're mm-hmm. like, yeah, it's it's good to get something alternative, as you say, to the system, to this very commercial thing. Um, can can I ask kind of like, you know, you're saying that your journalist course is kind of very commercial, mm-hmm. commercially geared and stuff like that. Mm. Um, yeah, well, I suppose how have you found the comparison already? Um, well, I guess it's 
being a student in a university, it's a very individual experience. It's about getting the education so you can get a good job. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely an atmosphere, I think, of, of competition. Mm. It's about ah. building your portfolio, getting those good stories mm. um, and, and writing stories that you could imagine being seen in, in commercial news um, publications or companies like on Seven News or mm. The Guardian, if that's what interests you. Mm. Um, there's definitely the spectrum of, of news publications that people, that students aspire to work in from conservative to, to more independent left um, kind of stuff. But um, I think, yeah, just that the kind of um, ambitiousness that you feel in the hallways yeah. of the mm-hmm. university mm-hmm. definitely colours the experience. And would you say, like, I'm, like, I'm curious, because I write for some, not like big media publications, but sort of more sort of discipline-specific publications. Mm-hmm. Is there much sort of working towards encouraging those kinds of areas, or is it all sort of the big current affairs type news? The program, I would say, is is about mainstream current, current affairs. affairs news. Like, they mm. encourage you in your assignments to make it, to make your work for a mainstream audience. Yep. But definitely every student has their own unique interests mm. and, and still... That comes out in the work that they do, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm. Well, that sounds pretty interesting. Now, also, Lois, as you said, you've got a bit of a passion for alternative news, so I figured mm-hmm. we'll, might, we might chuck into alternative news. I'm going to play um, Nitty Gritty by Shirley Elise, and then we're coming back in with quite a few stories, aren't we? Yes, quite a few today. Quite a few today. <laughs> <laughs> Rob's just kind of like, get ready. <laughs> I've brought all the information. All the information. All right. Some folks know about it, some don't. listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast and now for some alternative news. So firstly, uh, about some 
droughts in Australia. So there's been several towns in eastern Australia that have been estimated to only have 400 days left of water. And so according to the Bureau of Meteorology, this is partly being driven by warmer sea surface temperatures. And these have then impacted rainfall patterns. And so while... and there are many small towns in this predicament, particularly across New South Wales. But in addition to that, there's also several large towns which are starting to count down towards day zero. So this includes Dubbo, Armadale and Tamworth. And they're all forecast to run dry in mid to late next year, according to the latest government projections. And given these predictions, obviously many towns are now trying to extend that day zero sort of by tapping into underground reservoirs. However, there are questions then of what's the long-term sustainability of those. Um, and this obviously all comes at a time when we're expecting much a much hotter uh, summer than average. But kind of on that point, the, uh, the South Australian Parliament has declared a a uh, climate emergency. I don't know if you read that happen last week, the South Australian Parliament. No, I didn't. So, yes, there's been a motion declaring that Australia is facing a climate emergency, and that's passed the upper house of the South Australian Parliament. And speaking of, there's also currently a petition going around for the federal government to declare a climate emergency. So it's petition EN1041. That's petition EN1041. And currently it's at 180,000 signatures. So this is the record, I think, of the largest number of signatures of Australians signing an online petition. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you mentioned that, Rob. I was going to get in there. It's been interesting because it's, it's come out. It's open until October the 16th. So it is, yep. if it is something you are interested in doing at home, definitely get onto it. Mm. Um, and the government's not been really advertising it. No. So it is something you might want to go find. But you can find that at the um, Australian Parliamentary website yep. under petitions. And, yes, it, it takes... What, three seconds? Three seconds. And if you do want to sign, you have to make sure that you confirm your email once you sign the petition. So, yeah. Um, Then the third piece is a bit of a longer piece, but I was reading about it yesterday, and I think there's a lot of interesting... It sort of brings a lot of the stories that we bring covering on the show. And it's to do with the protests that have been occurring in Haiti over the past few weeks. And so I think this is a really powerful example of why developed nations in particular need to pull more in their fair share to reduce carbon emissions to then allow developing nations to have a bit more growing and breathing space. So as context, for a few months there's been intensifying protests in Haiti, particularly demanding that the president, Juven Moise, step down from his presidency. So these protests have arisen due to anger surrounding public corruption, inflation, as well as crippling fuel shortages. And there's been many, many events that have led to this outcome, including, as I said, government corruption, increased oil prices, and also international pressure to meet climate targets. And I'll sort of unpack all of those different factors. So as context, in 2006, Haiti joined a Venezuelan solidarity program called PetroCarb, which the intention was to supply oil to Haiti on quite favorable terms. So this included discounted prices and also low interest rates for repayments. And so this program was supposed to free up economic resources in Haiti, so then they could spend that money developing the country, so they could spend it more on infrastructure, boosting agricultural production, so it was kind of to help Haiti move beyond the poverty trap and develop itself. However, protesters have been claiming that significant government corruption has meant that these increase in funds that were supposed to use to help develop the country have been improperly used, and That also comes at a time when they've been amassing a significant debt to Venezuela. Now, in addition to these concerns, as a result of a few factors recently, the oil prices have now increased by about 50% in Haiti, and this is primarily for two reasons. Firstly, the Venezuelan economy has been 
faltering, and so there's been no shipments of oil coming in, or very few shipments of oil. So that's the first factor. And then secondly, the Haitian government introduced a policy to reduce the energy subsidies they had for oil before, and this is part of their Paris agreements. And in some ways they were... Some reports are saying kind of bullied into this, so the Haitian government removed these subsidies due to international pressure, including from the IMF, who promised to pay back some of their debts to Venezuela if the fuel subsidies were stopped. And so now, because of these increased fuel prices, it's kind of essentially trapped Haiti in this quite vicious poverty cycle. So because of these low prices initially for oil, many businesses and people's livelihoods have depended on this cheap oil. But now, as natural disasters come through, like earthquakes and hurricanes, now more communities are off the grid and really badly need fuel to run electricity generators, but can't do so because of the prohibitive prices. And so as a result, Haiti is kind of in this really awful situation where, firstly, the, uh, the, the government did not capitalise on the intended benefits of low oil prices, and now the country's become dependent on low oil prices, and now they've risen again, and now they've been disconnected from the grid due to natural disasters and need to use this oil to sustain themselves. So they're in this kind of really... Uh, it's bad situation. Essentially, this is what's starting all the protests that have been growing over the last few months. And so this article that I was reading was in Al Jazeera was making the point that Haiti's arrival to this situation is in part due to international climate negotiations, particularly so the author, Kasten Perry, argues that the international climate movement needs to recognise the inequitable impacts that international climate negotiations can have and also recognising the inherent power dynamic between developed and developing nations. So, for instance, in parallel to sort of Haiti being pushed to increase its oil prices as part of its Paris agreements, Haiti's also been struggling to then access any funding from the Green Climate Fund due to various onus criteria and bureaucratic barriers. And so it it's sort of moving away from using oil but then can't, access the funding to help it propel towards green energy. And so now when disaster strikes, rather than being independent, they're then dependent on short-term international aid handouts, which are generally quite short-term and just sort of help cover the bases. And so now they're trapped in this framework that doesn't enable the country to move to clean energy, yet cannot deal with its basic needs. And so to me, this is a really strong example of why it's sort of is kind of the classic debate about in international aid of why developed nations need to go even further than what they say they do or needs to go much beyond what they're um, the base minimum to meet the Paris agreements because they need to enable developing countries that breathing space to use petrochemicals if they need to for a period to kind of move beyond the poverty trap and then develop the countries to then move into more green energy. And so the article makes the point that unless we kind of address these issues, we'll be facing a much more unequal world um, if countries like Haiti are kind of trapped in the using of expensive petrochemicals without being given the opportunity to move towards more green energy sources. So, yeah, it's a long long article, and it took me a while to try and kind of process all the different pieces, but I think it's a pretty interesting example of, I guess, the unintended consequences of sometimes the climate negotiations and how we really have to consider the impacts that they can have on developing countries. But, yeah, that's my alternative news for today. Pretty good alternative. News. Yeah. <laughs> um, Lois, did you have anything to kind of add to that, or anything? Um, I just wanted to know where that story was published. So I found this in Al Jazeera. Okay. Um, they've yeah. been reporting it a little bit more. Um, mm-hmm. I think only in the last like a few days has the protest really, really increased, and so there's been a lot more analysis on it. But mm-hmm. the protests have apparently been happening for quite a few months. Okay, great. Um, I did have a story to contribute to our alternative news segment. Um, There's a lot of talk um, about youth activists in the media at the moment. Mm -hmm. And in an article by Kuri Mail, 
I learned that um, just last month, um, a 12-year-old Arenda and Gawa boy from Central Australia called Duan addressed the United Nations. Uh, in his speech, Duan called on the UN Human Rights Council and the Australian government to stop locking children up. Um, and there's three main things that he says he wants in his speech. The first is for his school to be run by Aboriginal people. The second is for adults to stop putting 10-year-old kids in jail. And the third is to have a future out on land and to learn a strong culture and language. Mm-hmm. Um, he also talks about a documentary that he's in in his speech, which is directed by Maya Newell. And um, the film, the documentary, looks at how Australia's education system is failing Indigenous youth. Um, and his speech kind of is illuminating because it draws on the broader issue of the the age um, that children are criminally, criminally responsible here in Australia, which at the moment nationwide is 10 years old. Um, and he demands for the Australian government to lift that age of criminal responsibility to at least 14. Uh, I think it's a really great speech and it's great to see that someone from Central Australia is mm. as young as 12 years old is, is talking to the UN. Mm. Absolutely. You can read his transcript online at the Human Rights Law Centre's website. Great. And this was in the Curry Mail? Yeah, that's yep. where I discovered the story. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's been interesting. Um, we're going to be kind of actually talking about this a little bit later. But it's been really interesting, the kind of um, commentary going around youth activists, mm. and especially youth activists' voice. I mean, last week we were talking about Greta Thunberg and um, kind of the notoriety she's ramped up within very angry old men. Mm, mm. Um, I think ABC's released a, a satirical video that went viral, which was mm. basically a hotline for any angry man who wants to, or any angry person who would like to rant about <laughs> Greta Thunberg. But it, it, it does seem like one, they're attracting a lot of anger from people. People do not like it when really younger people speak up. It really challenges something. Um, but that obviously means it's hitting a nerve. Absolutely, mm. hitting a nerve, speaking speaking to something. Um, we're actually going to kind of come back into that in a moment. So I'm just going to play a community service announcement and then we'll come back in exactly with another <laughs> youth uh, climate activist voice. Uh, so, yeah, more of that in a minute. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics on In Your Face on the last Friday of every month or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR. Funded by the City of Yarra. Wondering how you pay your donation to the 3CR Radiothon? Well, you can do so online at www.3cr.org.au or call us with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash, cheque or FPOS. Or simply post your cheque or money order to P.O. Box 1277 Collingwood 3066 and be sure to tell us which program you'd like your donation to go to.
and you're listening to 3CR. Now, we've kind of got an interesting segment coming up talking about kind of youth activist voices and also the dominance of Greta Thunberg. A lot of people have been calling out and saying, hey, there's actually a lot of, as you've mentioned, other voices Mm. that we're just not hearing about. So I thought today we could have a little bit of um, time to listen to a few other activist speeches, especially at the UN and kind of um, the the forums that have been happening recently. recently. So the first one we've got is um, Autumn Petler, who was appointed Chief Water Commissioner for the um, Ashinabak Nation and was just nominated for the International Children's Peace Prize in 2019, awarded annually to children who fight um, or to a person, I should say, who fights courageously for children's rights. Uh, she is a water protector and has been called a water warrior. Mm. And within this, um, she addresses the council but talks about the importance of water, um, both from a cultural aspect for her, but also just as, you know, one of the world's main resources. So I thought um, it was a pretty kick-ass speech. So we'll listen to that. And, yeah, we'll be back in then with another one. My name is Autumn Pelche. I'm 15 years old, and I'm from Wukwumakong on Manitoulin Island, which is in northern Ontario in Canada. I would like to thank the Global Landscapes Forum for having me here today to share my concerns and share why my people have a sacred connection to the water and lands. I would like to start by sharing that the work I do is in honor of my great Auntie Bidasageba. If I weren't, if it weren't for her lifetime commitment and sacrifices to create the awareness and the sacredness of water, I would not be standing here today. She inspired me to do this work as she was an elder when she began. I thought about who would keep doing her work one day. I just didn't expect that day would come as soon as it did. She created the Mother Earth Water Walks. She walked around all the Great Lakes more than once. She did this because the elders began to see changes in the lands, medicine, animals, and waters. I come from Manitoulin Island. It's the largest freshwater island in the world. It is surrounded by Lake Huron and Georgian Bay. It is here why it is here where my activism work began. It all started by learning why my people couldn't drink the water on Ontario Indigenous lands. I was confused as Canada is not a third world country. But here in my country, the indigenous people live in third world conditions. Boil water advisories are still in existence and have been for over 20 years in some communities. There are children born into a world living off bottled water, living off a certain amount to to do everyday things. I began to research this issue and discovered it was all across Canada. Then I learned of places like Flint, Michigan in the USA. Then I learned the seriousness of having clean drinking water. Then it was like a light bulb went off Why my great auntie was doing what she did for the majority of her life until her, until her last breath. She brings me to what means the most to me and what I have been learning and sharing, the sacredness of water. From a young age, from as long as I can remember, I was raised going to ceremony with my mother and my auntie Josephine. I was born in Thunder Bay, Ontario, and we spent a lot, a lot of time with her and my uncle Andrew. When you ask the question about why is the water so sacred, It's not just because we need it and nothing can survive without water. It's because for years and years, our ancestors have passed on traditional oral knowledge that our water is alive and our water has a spirit. Our first water teaching comes from within our own mother. We literally live in water for nine months, floating in that sacred water that gives us life. We can't live in our mother's womb without water. As a fetus, we need that sacred water for development. The sacred significance is that my mother comes from her mother's water, my grandmother comes from her mother's water, 
and my great-great-grandmother comes from her mother's water. Flowing within us is, is original water, lifeblood of Mother Earth, that sustains us as we come from this land. Mother Earth's power is in the lifeblood of Mother Earth, which is our water. Mother Earth has the power to destroy us all, and if we keep harming her, one day she may decide to destroy everything. All water is original from time immemorial. To think our ancestors drank from the same water thousands of years before us, water evaporates and can turn into mist, fog, rain, clouds, and snow. Water can go, go and be anywhere. We are constantly surrounded by water. Water not only surrounds us, but my teaching is that water hears us, feels us, and listens to us. When you pray to the water, our prayers are that much stronger. There are scientific studies that talk about water having spirit and feeling positive and negative thoughts. Growing up and understanding how everything is connected to water and how vital our waterways are, ama are is amazing in itself. My people still live off the land. We eat wild game. We harvest medicines from the lands. Our, waters, our waterways are vital in giving millions clean drinking water. Unlike sev several Canadian Indigenous communities across Canada and United States, and international countries in third world conditions where they don't have access to clean drinking water, I can't even imagine what, it's, what it is like to be dependent on bottled water. I visited a northern community called Attawapiskat, which is located on the James Bay, and I spoke to kids, and they shared their concerns and what it was like for them. No child should have to experience not knowing what it's like, what clean wa running water is. This makes me upset. This is why I'm here today. I've been raised in a traditional way and knowing my territory and the waters around my country and the issues my people face. I've heard of places like Flint, Michigan, Six Nations in the, of the Grand River. All across these lands, we, we know somewhere where someone can't drink the water. Why so many and why have they gone without water so long? I shared my thoughts with our Prime Minister and he promised me in 2016 he will he would look after the water, and as a youth, I will hold him or any future leader to the promise for my people. Children in northern Ontario communities right now still can't drink their water. Water is a basic human right. We, we all need to think about the planet and work together on solutions to reduce the impacts of human negligence. One solution that resonates with me is a story my grandfather shared with me. My grandfather is going to be 74. He told me when he was a little boy, there was no plastic. There was no such thing as a straw or saran wrap or a Ziploc bags. There was no foil, no disposable, no dispo disposable plastic existed. He said they preserved everything. They stored food in the ground in cellars, used salt and blocks of ice. He said everything was good. Everything was wood or glass. They rescued everything they could because they had no choice. So why can't we ban all plastics and go back to the old way and work for our daily living. That's an inexpensive solution by trying to be more environmentally friendly and do the work. My ancestors were hard workers. My people survived without electricity and what, we, and what we see today. Why can't we go back to our ways? I'm sure everyone in this room has, has heard a story from their grandparents of how hard they worked and how they lived. I know I hear it when I listen to the elders. They share stories for a reason as they are our teachers. Maybe we need to have more elders and youth together sitting at the decision table when people make decisions about our lands and waters. I said it once, and I'll say it again. We can't eat money or drink oil. In closing, 
need to protect the habitants around all waters across the world. We need to remember that our ancestors' prayers are still protecting this land and that we are ancestors' hope. One day I will be an ancestor and I want my descendants to know I use my voice so they can have a future. We need to join forces with all nations, regardless of color and nationality. Mother Earth is not, does not discriminate and we need Mother Earth to live and we need the waters. When we stand together as one, we are one voice and one nation. And to save our planet, let's do this for our great-grandchildren. Thank you. Miigwech. And so that was the words of Autumn Pittler, as I said. Um, we've now actually got one more um, kind of youth climate activist person to listen to. This is Shutez Katnachu, speaking at the UN in 2015. Um, he is actually the youth director of Earth Gardens, but more importantly as well, he's also um, an act, climate activist, hip-hop artist, and kind of like this, this really cool community organizer, so that's pretty awesome. Um, but he's the youth director of Earth Guardians, as I mentioned, which was originally set up by his mum. And he's here again talking to the UN um, with some pretty powerful words. <laughs> Buenos dias. Good morning, everybody. My name is Shutes Katonatiu. I'm very, very honored to be here today. I think it's amazing to look around the world and see almost 200 countries represented here today because it's really going to take united action from all of us in order to make a difference. I'm 15 years old. And I'm the youth director of an organization called Earth Guardians. And I'm working with young people around the planet to protect our earth, our air, our water, and our atmosphere for my generation and those to follow. I stand before you today representing my entire generation. As well as generations unborn, I stand before you representing the indigenous peoples of this earth and those that will inherit the effects of our climate crisis that we face today as a global community. My father raised me in the Mexica tradition. I learned from my father that all life is sacred. He showed me that every living thing is connected because we all draw life from the same earth and we all drink from the same waters. I was raised in the ceremonies of my people, learning the dances, the songs, and the language that was passed on to me by my, my people, by my ancestors. And what I learned from my cultural heritage is that this life is a gift, and it is our responsibility to respect and protect that which gives us life. So I began to, to look at the world around me and began to learn about the issues that we are facing. And I saw that we were facing a crisis that was beginning to affect every living system on our planet. I saw that climate change was going to be the defining issue of our time. Seeing this world, seeing my world, collapsing around me, pushed me into action. So for the last nine years, since I was six years old, I've been on the front lines of climate and environmental movements, standing up to fight for my future and for our planet. What a lot of people fail to see or simply ignore is that climate change isn't an issue that is far off in the future. It isn't solely affecting the ice caps and the poles or the sea level rise in our oceans. It's affecting us right here, right now, and will only continue to get worse. In a three-month period, 
My family and I, we witnessed the greatest wildfires and the worst floods we've ever seen in Colorado history. Frequency and severity of massive storms and massive floods, massive superstorms are increasing all over the planet because of our lack of action and because of the increase in carbon dioxide emissions, because of the way that we are living. And because of this, young people are standing up all over the planet because we see that climate change is a human rights issue. It is affecting especially developing countries, women, children, and people of color more than anything else. We have to realize that what is at stake is no longer just the planet, is no longer just the environment, but what's at stake right now is the existence of my generation. What is at stake right now, what we are fighting to protect, what is in your hands, what is in our hands today, is the survival of this generation and the continuation of the human race. That is what is at stake. So youth are standing up all over the planet to find solutions to the issues that will be left to my generation. Earth Guardian crews are starting up all over the planet and youth are using their passions to address some of the greatest issues of our time by planting seeds of solutions that can change the world. Over 400,000 people marched through the streets of New York City in the greatest climate march in the history of the world. More than 220 institutions have divested from fossil fuels with the help of student-led movements. And that number continues to grow. Youth like myself across the United States are suing our state and federal governments, demanding them to take action on climate change immediately. We are flooding the streets and we are now flooding the courts to show the world that there is a movement on the rise and that our generation is at the front of that movement, fighting for the solutions that we need and we need you to help us. We are approaching 21 years of United Nations climate talks and in the last 20 years of negotiations, Almost no agreements have been made on a bonding climate recovery plan. Our window of opportunity to take action is shrinking as the problem exponentially increases. We need you to take action at COP21 before it's too late. Because as I said, what's at stake right now is the future of your children, our children, my children, our grandchildren. When we look into our eyes, we see the next generation. And we see that that is the planet that we are leaving to them. We look at the world and we see the planet that we will leave to our generation. So don't be afraid to dream big. Because not only is it possible to get off of fossil fuels, but it is already happening. Cities and countries around the planet are committing to go 100% renewable in the first half of the century. The Pope himself called for a shift from fossil fuels to renewable energy. The solutions are here, and with them are coming millions of jobs and economic opportunities. Imagine if we took all the money that we are pouring into the fossil fuel industry and into the nuclear industry and put that into renewables. Imagine what we could accomplish. Phasing out fossil fuels is a dream that is slowly becoming a reality. And the question is, Will it happen fast enough to avoid further climate catastrophe? It's time to look to the skies for the solutions that we need. Because the future of energy is no longer down a hole. We need to reconnect with the earth and end this mindset that we have that we can take whatever we want without ever giving back or understanding the harm that we are doing to the planet. It's this mindset of destruction, of greed, 
that is tearing apart our planet. We need to change the fundamental beliefs of our entire society. We have to remember that we are all indigenous to this earth and that we are all connected. Every generation leaves a mark on this planet. We leave something behind to be remembered by, and we are at a tipping point right now where we will either be remembered as a generation that destroyed the planet, as a generation that put profits before future, or as a generation that united to address the greatest issue of our time by changing our relationship with the earth. We are being called upon to use our courage, our innovation, our creativity, and our passion to bring forth a new world. So in the light of this collapsing world that we see, what better time to be born than now? What better time to be alive than now? Because this generation, the people in this room right here, we get to change the course of history. Humans have created the greatest crisis that we see on the planet. And the greater the challenge, the higher we will rise to overcome it. We need you to stand with us. Never before has there been such a unifying issue as climate change. And it is time now to set aside everything that divides us. Everything that separates us. Everything that makes us want to point a finger at someone else and throw the problem to them. Who will stand with me now for mine and future generations to inherit a healthy, just, and sustainable planet? Who will stand with me now? The hope of this planet, of this generation, is in our hands. I don't want you to stand up for us. I want you to stand up with us. Because together we can change the world. And it's not going to be easy. But it is our responsibility. We owe it to future generations to be the leaders of today so that they can have a tomorrow. Thank you. And those were the words of Shooters Katnalchu speaking at the UN in 2015. Now, just kind of coming off the back of this, um, I, I wanted to have a short discussion. Uh, a big piece of rhetoric that both those climate activists mentioned, uh, both Autumn and Shooters Katnalchu, was um, this idea of youth fighting for the youth of tomorrow. Mm. Um, and I was doing this reading last week in uni. <laughs> <laughs> bring in a little bit of that. Um, and one of the kind of readings that's a professor from Cambridge called Dr. Uh, sorry, David Runciman raises two propositions about democracy and about um, kind of what we're at with democracy. He says, look, we've moved into the third stage of democracy and we're not doing well. Democracy as a system is broken. And two of the ways that he suggests we go about fixing it, two of the immediate changes we need to bring in, is one, to shift the belief that the future belongs to the youth, uh, to instead kind of widen responsibility. Say, hey, okay, the future belongs to everyone, and this includes our older people, our older voters, who currently, as you know, make up the majority of our population. And then the second thing he says is to radically lower the voting age. And he's saying, we, don't, we, we lower the voting age to not something like 16, but to something like 6. Mm. Now, keeping in mind that we just heard from Shooters Katanachu, who said he started um, his activism work at you know, six years old. I was kind of wondering, what's your thoughts on these two very kind of radical or interesting kind of propositions for fixing democracy? Mm. So first off, that the future belongs to everyone, especially old people, and to radically voting the, um, 
lowering the voting age. Rob, what's your thoughts? Um, well, jumping on the second point about lowering the voting age to six, I think it's quite interesting because, like, when you look at um, Greta Thunberg, the, the point that she says is that the reason she's able to be a climate activist is that she sees the world in black and white mm. because of her Asperger's syndrome. And so I feel like in some ways when you're younger, you're not sort of exposed to um, that kind of the the politics behind a lot of climate decision making mm. or various other decision making you you see it more on principle and on values and so i wonder when you're younger you're then able to also see things more in black and white mm. um and so that could be quite interesting and in whether you're able to sort of objectively be like oh we need to address climate change because it's going to affect my generation and future generations and so that could be like i think a strong reason to lower it to six but then i also wonder like where do they get influence from? Because there's a, like mm. at quite a young age, you're very influenced by who's around you. So your parents, schools. So if the voting age is lower to six, how would they um, know how to vote? Like when they go to the voting booth, does their parents stand with them and sort of help do them tick the box? Supervise, yeah. yeah, and sort of gently nudge you down their way. Mm. And like whether that then is actually demo- like actually voting yeah. on your own voice, or, do you, or would you maybe vote in the classroom? How Which, in then case, it? you're influenced by the by teacher. teacher. Yeah. yeah. What's I, your thoughts? My concern is six is, is quite young. I do mm. think it should be lowered. Um, but if it was to be lowered, there'd need to be some kind of education on the civic system for mm. youth. Mm. And then there is the question of whether it's family teaching children mm. or whether it's the education, like schools and institutes. And in Australia, at least, I think we're really reluctant to address politics in the classroom. Mm. So I don't know how you would teach someone as a teacher, how to vote without being biased, potentially. That's very true. And also within Australian syllabus, I mean, it's so whitewashed. It's just absolutely so mm. coming from situation situated in such privilege that it could, it, even if you had an education syllabus, it's very hard to say that that would be the right one or a, a non-biased one. And I guess also the fact that it's lower to six implies that you have access to the news as well, which mm. depending on where you are in the country, you might not. Yeah. And whether you're actually making sort of a decision that's actually best for your your, your, your future, your future life. life. Right, that's very true. Um, and that, that is one point. Um, what Runciman's kind of main argument is, and this is interesting, is he says at the moment we have a structural imbalance. We're living in the first phase of democracy where um, our eldest people make up the widest population. And mm-hmm. as we were saying, Rob, before, that means a lot of short-term decisions. Yep. So he says we bring it in purely for the fact that um, by... lowering the voting age, we kind of even the playing field, Mm. as well as also saying that democracy, one of their core values is this idea of equality and suffrage, like universal suffrage. So the right to a vote is something that um, individuals should have as a responsibility and right as early as possible. Mm. I don't know. For my, my, my opinions, I think... Definitely voting lower, lowering the voting age. And I think yeah. also when people say 16, that's a bit conservative. Mm. I think mm-hmm. we could actually go lower than that. So I think Rob and I were discussing maybe lowering it to like when you start high school. Okay. Yeah. Perhaps that's when you become a bit more a bit more conscious. I feel like it's when you start to understand your own values. Because when you vote, it's mm. an expression of what you believe in and what you think your values mm. are and what's important yeah. for you and society. And I guess, I guess the distinction is like... By six, you, you have a good set of values, but you don't necessarily have the values. You can't necessarily read a piece of information and synthesize the, you know, what values yeah, are, in, are kept in them. Yeah. So you might know right from wrong in your head, but you can't necessarily read a chunk of text by a politician going, you know, this is my policy, and go, ah, does this fit my values or not? <laughs> yeah, and sort of critically analyse it. Yeah, especially when it's built up and enshrined in this jargon. So, mm. yeah, that, that's the first idea. And the second one was this reframing of the climate argument, and I thought this might be interesting for you, um, Lois, as you mentioned. Um, 
reframing the argument so it's not so much uh, kids needing to save the environment for their future, but reframing it so that old people need to save it for their future mm. <laughs> and reminding kind of older voters that the future does belong to them, that they do have to live with the consequences of their actions. What, what's your thoughts on this? Do you think that could possibly work in mainstream media? Yeah, definitely. I think um, some of the stuff I'm seeing in mainstream media that I think is great for older audiences to to view is looking at the direct effects that are happening now because so often it gets at least climate change stories you read these hard to understand numbers and statistics or these predictions about what will happen in the future but more and more now we're seeing stories um, coming out in the media especially in Al Jazeera about um, things that are happening because of climate change right now Mm. that are affecting people right now and I think um, I think that's great. I think looking at it, thinking about it as something that's happening right now and affecting people mm. is a good way to make people care about it more. Mm. Finishing on that, there's a lovely note, one of the other readings about democracy, which was saying democracy asks um, only that you stick around to suffer the consequences of your choices. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, that, definitely, okay, reframing. Well, we're going to jump quickly to a song and then come into our first interview. Um, Rob, could What's you the song? tell us a song? Yeah, yeah, so it's by Jamie Isaac, and it's called Softly Draining Seas.
Listening to 3CR. That was a song by Jamie Isaac. And we're coming up to our next interview. So we've got Susan today from the um, Australian Climate Foundation. Well, I've got that wrong. Australian Conservation Foundation. There we go. On the ACF. And she's here to kind of update us on everything climate justice and climate change. Um, Jumping in, Susan, just before we get into our main interview, just commenting on our last discussion, uh, radically dropping the voting age and also reframing the climate argument to something that older people should feel a responsibility for. Can we just get your kind of thoughts on that? Sure. Look, I do feel that all people should feel a responsibility for climate change, and we've seen that with millions of young people coming out around the world in climate strikes. Mm-hmm. I think the issue, though, is, you know, you can take to the streets, and they have, and that's very uh, important and impactful. Mm-hmm. But as you're saying, how do you actually gain political power? Mm-hmm. Um, so not just influencing... Um, <laughs> How do you actually gain political power? So how do you change the political system so that there is a broader um, reach in terms of power? And I guess the question whether or not we reduce the voting age is a, is a, is a real one, is a relevant mm-hmm. one. Um, but I think there are other issues as well because there's a massive influence of, for example, money uh, in, in political power. And I'm just reflecting on how, wow, we saw millions of people around the world coming out, mm-hmm. really strongly calling for a future that's protected. We also saw politicians, Australian politicians, in fact, our own resources minister in India and Bangladesh, spruiking coal, um, yeah. a massive disconnect. So what's happening there? Um, and you have to wonder about the influence and power of fossil fuel money in, in politics. So I guess, um, you know, one of the first things that comes to mind in terms of addressing um, the, the corrupting influences of politics uh, I would certainly start with uh, trying to remove the corrupting influence of money mm-hmm. uh, in and politics lobbying. and yeah. lobbying. Yeah. Two very connected things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, well, there you go. David Runciman, you've, you've figured out democracy. Democracy is now fixed, <laughs> hypothetically. Um, touching on that idea of student strikes and the colossal strike that we saw last week, week before, uh, can we kind of get your sense on that? Uh, as you said, huge disconnect between politics and students. What do you think it's given to the movement and where do you think it's, we, we need to go from it? Because obviously, as you mentioned, Scott Morrison was busy in a box factory on the day of the strike. He refused to go seek the climate summit. He's acting quite like a big child. Mm. <laughs> um, meanwhile, there's thousands of students out on the street, thousands of Austra- young Australians. Yeah, I think it's actually appalling and really irresponsible that our Prime Minister was right there in New York, mm. um, couldn't be bothered or perha- perhaps uh, knew that his own policies were so inadequate mm. um, that he had no right to show up. Um, that's part of it. He tried to make a speech after the fact, um, sort of spruiking his own actions, which was massively shot down because it's pretty clear that what he's committed to and what he's doing is completely, as I say, inadequate, not up to the task, nowhere close to what we need to be doing. So um, I think, you know, he needs to take a second look uh, mm-hmm. if, if he really feels as though Australia can be viewed um, with any relevance um, on the climate issue. 
but in terms of what happened, it was unprecedented and I think quite amazing to see student-led, <coughs> excuse me, young people-led strikes all over the world, <coughs> excuse me, and while those were supported by hundreds of businesses, hundreds of um, civil society organizations, many of which said, look, we'll close our doors, go out, um, this was something that I think was massive and in Australia unprecedented in terms of a climate strike. Mm-hmm. Um, we literally saw millions of people take to the the streets. It's very, very hard to ignore that and very hard to say that that isn't something really big, um, really substantial. And for folks working on climate change, I think um, what what that has done uh, for me personally even is it just gives you heart and hope. It, it genuinely does to see that many young people um, with, with, with a level of power because they are out there, they're making a decision um, to take action and really following up. So I, I think, you know, for me, this is start of something big. And as you were mentioning before in your conversation, that people are feeling the impacts of climate change right now. It's mm-hmm. no longer theoretical. It's no longer just the confusing science. And it is a confusing issue. But there's no question that people are being impacted right now in this country and around the world, that lives are being affected, um, agriculture, food supplies, a lot of things. Mm-hmm. People are actually becoming climate refugees already. Our own Pacific Island uh, neighbors are becoming climate refugees. So I think when you put those things together, those impacts, people realizing, wow, something is happening, even folks that perhaps were previously um, questioning uh, climate change or denying it are now kind of saying, wow, okay. And then when you see this many young people saying, this is about our future, you can't look us in the face Mm. uh, and just do nothing. I think this is really important. Absolutely. And talking about the uh, climate summit itself, did we see the agreements we needed to see kind of come out of it or um, anything kind of interesting? What do you think was the vibe of the summit? Look, it it, it did fall short overall. So the climate strikes happened just before the United Nations Climate Action Summit. So it was all built around climate action and the UN Secretary General framed it that way. It was very, very clear that, you know, we want um, national leaders to come to this and business leaders, frankly, uh, Mm -hmm. and make really strong up their commitments because the Paris Agreement was always set up so that you get an initial set of agreements. Everyone knew it wasn't going to be enough, but the plan was you ratchet up over time. Exactly. We can get there, but we need that overall sense of, yes, we will continue to ratchet up. And this was the opportunity for for nations to do that. Now, we did see around 65 countries come up with um, forms of commitments around getting to net zero by 2050. That's actually important. Um, From a policy perspective, you set that goal and then things start moving. Um, You know, they they, they basically um, are tied to that. So to the extent that that turns into real strong commitments to get there, that could be uh, quite good. But we didn't see, obviously, the United States um, has been a real laggard and with Trump saying, He's going to pull out of the Paris Agreement and making um, mm. no commitments at all. So that's um, that's real concerning. You just have to hope that the um, the election in the U.S. Um, changes the government. So perhaps we get um, some sanity into the picture before U.S. pulls out. But and that was that's the same with uh, China for different reasons. But they chose not to increase um, their commitments. Oh, okay. Um, well, but they are moving very rapidly mm. towards clean energy. So that's a good thing. Same thing with India. Uh, India said that they would um, speed up their transition and their commitment to renewable energy. So that's important. 
um, but at the same time, they didn't make any commitments around phasing out coal more quickly. So, again, they have mm. this duality thing, uh, and we are, you know, Austria, not we, uh, but Australia, the Australian government, um, yeah. is there really trying to encourage um, coal imports from Australia. So we, we, we did see, you know, these varying levels of of commitments it would have been good to see much much more but it's not the end of the story um, one one thing that also is good we saw some large asset managers um, folks that hold a whole lot of um, funds Mm-hmm. Uh, willing to make commitments to reduce their portfolios to, again, to net zero, and some big businesses also making those kinds of commitments. So we are seeing a little bit more from the corporate world. Uh, I think th- that is important. We need to see more of that, mm. uh, as well as some some countries. One thing that gave me heart also, um, you know, there were some <laughs> European countries, including the French president, saying, uh, we how do we... Um, how do we forge trade agreements with countries that are such laggards on climate? And mm. we have to reflect on that here in Australia as well, where we're negotiating uh, an agreement with the EU, and the EU is taking stronger action than Australia um, on climate change. So, mm. so we may see some of these, some of the pressure, the international pressure, uh, international yeah. pressure be borne out through negotiations, for example, trade negotiations, mm-hmm. uh, and I hope we do see more of that. Absolutely. Well, Australia is very sensitive about their trade negotiations. I was just thinking also with the Climate Summit, uh, Scott Morrison's appalling behaviour around it, uh, with Gina Reinhardt as kind of the symbol. Australia's policy is close to the home. As you said, he he did make a statement around Australia's climate commitments. Um, And recently we've also seen kind of uh, commitments such as like $5 million to kind of uh, $5 million package to the Pacific, which is being called out for being quite rubbishy. Could you kind of just let us know what's going on at home while this is kind of all this is raging? Yeah, sure. So it wasn't long ago that the Pacific Island Forum occurred, Mm. um, and that's where Scott Morrison went and faced, well, the first thing he faced were some young people actually in water showing that, you know, greetings, Prime Minister, we are going underwater, Mm -hmm. we need help, climate change is our biggest threat, and it's an existential threat. So that's the way the Pacific Island Forum began, Um, and during that forum, um, the Prime Minister and the Australian government unfortunately went out of their way to try to change the communique that was put out to actually reduce um, wording that would imply, you know, climate commitments. Yeah. Um, so that's really very, very unfortunate. You're right. They did commit some ad- additional money, mm. uh, and that could be could be useful. But again, telling a, a nation or a set of nations that here we'll throw you a bit of money, but we're not going to do anything about the fact that climate change is really genuinely threatening your future and your ability to live on your land. Uh, But we're not going to do anything about that. Uh, There's, again, this massive disconnect. So we have that um, where we haven't done what's right for our Pacific nations, uh, island neighbours. And then alongside that, we have kind of the same climate commitments, and the government has taken it to a new art form um, to try to make that stuff look good, which it just isn't. We have the same targets, 26% target. Mm. Now, the UN is saying we need to see at least the 45% by 2030. We're at 26. Well, again, a massive disconnect. We don't have a long-term target, that Mm. net zero that's so important, that would give us something to work to, to really decarbonize. We don't have that kind of commitment here. Um, we actually have almost no climate policies. The renewable energy target has been met, so there's nothing to keep driving renewable energy, which has been the most important aspect of our 
decarbonization because mm. our energy sector is, is so polluting. We have no transport policy, no vehicle emission standards. We have no policy to actually drive down emissions from industry. Um, we have what's called a safeguard mechanism, which just keeps raising baselines so high that it doesn't touch um, the pollution of our biggest polluters. And they keep – it's full of loopholes, so there's always a way to pollute a little bit more and never have to pay a fine. So we have very, very little in this country to mm. actually reduce climate pollution. And so for him to stand up and make a speech saying that we're great is pretty outrageous. Absolutely. Well, on that note, we're going to have to close up the interview. But thank you so much for coming in and giving us kind of our climate wrap-up. And as you said, there are some nuggets of gold within a wider narrative. So we have to hang on to those and hopefully see some change, especially with this student action. Thank gotcha. you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to jump quickly to a song. Um, Rob, this is called Daughter in the Woods. Yes, so it's by Daughter, and it's called The Woods. Ah. <laughs>
find your sister. She ran out in the woods. She ran out in the woods. That was daughter with her song The Woods. Um, we're next up going to have some union news. This was from last week, so the week of 25th of September 2019. Not last week. Was that last week? I think it was. Anyway, um, this is just a good little union wrap-up, and we'll, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll give you the details afterwards of where you can listen to some more. Well, this federal Liberal government just can't seem to help themselves. This time, IR Minister Christian Porter has taken steps to lodge an appeal and wind back the landmark court result for shift workers. We reported a few weeks ago that shift workers across the country had won a significant victory thanks to the AMWU delegates at the Cadbury's Chocolate Factory in Hobart. They had taken the parent company, Mondelez, to court, claiming back pay for the underpayment and under accrual of sick leave for all 12-hour shift workers. The court found that where the National Employment Standards refers to a minimum of 10 days sick leave, that this should mean 12-hour shift workers get 120 hours per year. The company had been basing its system on a standard 7.6-hour day roster, but this created an annual deficiency of 44 hours for every 12-hour shift worker. The federal court and a full bench appeal both agreed with the workers, but there's never been a condition of employment that the Liberals haven't wanted to strip away. The government supported Mondelez's case to cap workers' sick leave to 76 hours, but was unsuccessful. They are now using taxpayers' money to appeal the court's decision all the way to the High Court. It's an unusual but completely unsurprising outcome, as this government seems to only have one thing on its agenda. Smash unions, cut paying conditions and drive up profits for their mates in big business. The government has also not ruled out making legislative changes if the court action fails. Workers at Armstrong Flooring are celebrating victory after their employer accepted their claims following a four-day strike in Melbourne southeast. Members of the NUW and the AMWU commenced action on the 17th of September in support of increases to wages but also demands on the company to end the culture of bullying by management. On Friday afternoon, just as the climate strike was starting in Melbourne, the members unanimously supported a deal that delivered 3% annual wage increases back paid to July this year, a $500 voucher for striking workers and an independent investigation into the workers' allegations of bullying. A 24-hour presence was maintained at the site for the duration of the strike and tensions did get to high points, with a number of workers being targeted by a car attempting to drive through the picket line. In other news out of the NUW, this time in New South Wales, members at one of Woolworth's distribution centres in Minchinbury have rejected an offer by the company and endorsed moves towards industrial action. In addition to fair pay increases, the workers there are demanding improved redundancy provisions and equal rights for labour hire workers. Still in New South Wales, workers at Bega Cheese are also celebrating victory this week after their employer backed down in the face of strike threats. Members at the plant from the AMWU, the AMIEU and the ETU had threatened the first strike at the regional New South Wales cheese plant's long history. Union members have won improved wages and conditions, including base rate increases and payments and allowances that satisfied their original claim of 3% per year. Workers have also achieved improvements in casual worker rights, uniforms for administrative staff, better sick leave conditions and new domestic violence support for its employees. Oil and gas multinational ESSO have put their Victorian assets, including offshore platforms in the Bass Strait, up for sale. 
The move comes a fortnight after the Fair Work Commission ruled against the company, preventing it from terminating its enterprise agreements and dumping 265 workers back onto the minimum award conditions. The AWU said that the company was seeking to cut wages by 60% and force members into longer stints on the platforms, meaning their families would not see them while they worked 14 days straight without any breaks. Regular listeners will also recall the company was the subject of a more than two-year dispute, with Victoria's longest ever picket line outside the long gas plant. This plant is included in the potential sale, leading to further uncertainty for the hundreds of workers in the region. Last week, the Victorian branch of the TWU issued notice it would take strike action against two private bus contractors, Christians, which operates out of the regional city of Bendigo, and Cranbourne Transit in Melbourne's southeast. The action was set to commence on Monday the 23rd. However, late on the 19th, the union issued a press release declaring victory at both companies. The union says the threat of strike action has broken the deadlock at both companies after negotiations had stalled and has led to offers which include strong wage growth without undercutting existing conditions. In one case, Cranbourne Transit, the company had refused to negotiate at all until the Fair Work Commission forced them into it in May this year. These agreements appear to be the tail end of the TWU's campaign to lift wages and conditions for Victorian bus drivers. The campaign, including several work stoppages, has seen significant wage growth and increases to superannuation, being won at some of Melbourne's largest bus contractors. In other news out of the Victorian TWU, the union is heralding recent changes to the Owner Drivers and Forestry Contractors Act, which will make it easier for owner drivers to resolve disputes with their employers. The changes are also being described as a win for workers in the gig economy, with companies like Uber Freight now falling under the legislation for the first time. More information about the laws and the changes that have been made can be found on the TWU's website, which is www.twu.asn.au. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has come under fire this week after he was awarded a more than 11% pay increase by the state's independent remuneration panel. Unions have called the government hypocritical, comparing the leader's increase with the official wages policy of the government. The lowest increase for Victorian's politicians was 3.5% for backbenchers. However, this is still a lot higher than the wages policy that mandates public servants not receive increases of more than 2%. Paramedics have stepped up their campaign against the government, seizing on the figures to point out that Victoria now has the highest paid Premier, but the lowest paid paramedics. The government faces growing opposition from unions across the public sector who are seeking wage increases above the official cap. The pay increase for politicians is their second in less than six months, with an automatic 2.9% increase applied in July, adjusting for inflation. Organised worker action continues to grow at tech and logistics giant Amazon, this time amongst its corporate staff, with thousands of workers walking off the job last Friday around the world as part of the climate strike. A group within the company has been pressuring Amazon CEO and world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, to commit to stronger action on climate change. The pressure seems to be working, with the billionaire announcing the day before the strike that the company would bring forward its pledge for carbon neutrality by 10 years. However, the workers said that this was not enough and still left work to march, saying that a target of carbon neutrality by 2040 was not good enough and that the company must take stronger action. Still in the US, more than 40,000 members of the United Auto Workers maintain their picket lines across General Motors, shutting down 33 plants and 22 warehouses. The strike is now in its second week, and strikers have been supported by a number of unions, particularly the Teamsters, who have pledged not to transport any GM cars that had not already been delivered to showrooms. 
Elsewhere in the states, nurses have also walked out at a number of hospitals across the country. 6,500 nurses at 12 private hospitals stopped work for a day in Arizona, California and Florida. Their demands were for higher wages and better staff ratios. Their claims were mirrored by the more than 2,000 nurses at the University of Chicago's Medical Center, who also took strike action on Friday. Workers there described the conditions where short staffing means that many are forced to work overtime, even after having worked their regular 12-hour shifts. The use of strike break under uh, with Gina Reinhardt as kind of the symbol. Australia's policy is close to the home, as you said. He he did make a statement around Australia's climate commitments, um, and recently we've also seen kind of uh, commitments such as like five million dollars to kind of uh, uh, five million dollar package to the Pacific, which is being called out for being quite rubbishy. Could you kind of just let us know what's going on at home while this is kind of all this is raging? Yeah, sure. So it wasn't long ago that the Pacific Island Forum occurred, mm. um, and that's where Scott Morrison went and faced, well, the first thing he faced were some young people actually in water showing yep. that, you know, greetings, Prime Minister, we are going underwater, mm-hmm. we need help. Climate change is our biggest threat, and it's an existential threat. So that's the way the Pacific Island Forum began, um, and during that forum, um, the Prime Minister and the Australian government, unfortunately, went out of their way to try to change the communique that was put out to actually reduce um, wording that would imply, you know, climate commitments. Yeah. Um, so that's really very, very unfortunate. You're right. They did commit some ad- additional money, mm. uh, and that could be could be useful. But again, telling a, a nation or a set of nations that here we'll throw you a bit of money, but we're not going to do anything about the fact that climate change is really genuinely threatening your future and your ability to live on your land. Uh, But we're not going to do anything about that. Uh, There's, again, this massive disconnect. So we have that um, where we haven't done what's right for our Pacific nations, uh, island neighbours. And then alongside that, we have kind of the same climate commitments and the government has taken it to a new art form um, to try to make that stuff look good, which it just isn't. We have the same targets, 26% target. Mm. Now, the UN is saying we need to see at least the 45% by 2030. We're at 26. Well, again, a massive disconnect. We don't have a long-term target, that Mm. net zero that's so important, that would give us something to work to, to really decarbonize. We don't have that kind of commitment here. Um, we actually have almost no climate policies. The renewable energy target has been met, so there's nothing to keep driving renewable energy, which has been the most important aspect of our decarbonization because Mm. our energy sector is is so polluting. We have no transport policy, no vehicle emission standards. We have no policy to actually drive down emissions from industry. Um, We have what's called a safeguard mechanism, which just keeps raising baselines so high that it doesn't touch Um, the pollution of our biggest polluters and they keep it's full of loopholes so there's always a way to pollute a little bit more and never have to pay a fine so we have very very little in this country to Mm. actually reduce climate pollution and so for him to stand up and make a speech saying that we're great is pretty outrageous absolutely well on that note we're going to have to close up the interview but thank you so much for coming in and giving us kind of our climate wrap-up and as you said there are some nuggets of gold within a wider's narrative, so we have to hang on to those and hopefully see some change, especially with this student action. Thank That's you very much. Right. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right, we're going to jump quickly to a song. Um, Rob, this is called Daughter in the Woods. Yes, so it's by Daughter and it's called The Woods. Ah. <laughs> Christopher, to find your 
sister And she ran out in the woods And she ran out in the woods Oh, it was so daughter that was daughter with her song the woods um we're next up going to have some union news this was from last week so the week of 25th of september 2019 not last week was that last week i think it was anyway um this is just a good little union wrap up and we'll uh, yeah we'll, we'll give you the details afterwards of where you can listen to some more
Well, this federal Liberal government just can't seem to help themselves. This time, IR Minister Christian Porter has taken steps to lodge an appeal and wind back the landmark court result for shift workers. We reported a few weeks ago that shift workers across the country had won a significant victory thanks to the AMWU delegates at the Cadbury's Chocolate Factory in Hobart. They had taken the parent company, Mondelez, to court, claiming back pay for the underpayment and under accrual of sick leave for all 12-hour shift workers. The court found that where the National Employment Standards refers to a minimum of 10 days sick leave, that this should mean 12-hour shift workers get 120 hours per year. The company had been basing its system on a standard 7.6-hour day roster, but this created an annual deficiency of 44 hours for every 12-hour shift worker. The federal court and a full bench appeal both agreed with the workers, but there's never been a condition of employment that the Liberals haven't wanted to strip away. The government supported Mondelez's case to cap workers' sick leave to 76 hours, but was unsuccessful. They are now using taxpayers' money to appeal the court's decision all the way to the High Court. It's an unusual but completely unsurprising outcome, as this government seems to only have one thing on its agenda. Smash unions, cut paying conditions and drive up profits for their mates in big business. The government has also not ruled out making legislative changes if the court action fails. Workers at Armstrong Flooring are celebrating victory after their employer accepted their claims following a four-day strike in Melbourne southeast. Members of the NUW and the AMWU commenced action on the 17th of September in support of increases to wages but also demands on the company to end the culture of bullying by management. On Friday afternoon, just as the climate strike was starting in Melbourne, the members unanimously supported a deal that delivered 3% annual wage increases back paid to July this year, a $500 voucher for striking workers and an independent investigation into the workers' allegations of bullying. A 24-hour presence was maintained at the site for the duration of the strike and tensions did get to high points, with a number of workers being targeted by a car attempting to drive through the picket line. In other news out of the NUW, this time in New South Wales, members at one of Woolworth's distribution centres in Minchinbury have rejected an offer by the company and endorsed moves towards industrial action. In addition to fair pay increases, the workers there are demanding improved redundancy provisions and equal rights for labour hire workers. Still in New South Wales, workers at Bega Cheese are also celebrating victory this week after their employer backed down in the face of strike threats. Members at the plant from the AMWU, the AMIEU and the ETU had threatened the first strike at the regional New South Wales cheese plant's long history. Union members have won improved wages and conditions, including base rate increases and payments and allowances that satisfy their original claim of 3% per year. Workers have also achieved improvements in casual worker rights, uniforms for administrative staff, better sick leave conditions and new domestic violence support for its employees. Oil and gas multinational Esso have put their Victorian assets, including offshore platforms in the Bass Strait, up for sale. The move comes a fortnight after the Fair Work Commission ruled against the company, preventing it from terminating its enterprise agreements and dumping 265 workers back onto the minimum award conditions. The AWU said that the company was seeking to cut wages by 60% and force members into longer stints on the platforms, meaning their families would not see them while they worked 14 days straight without any breaks. Regular listeners will also recall the company was the subject of a more than two-year dispute, with Victoria's longest ever picket line outside the long gas plant. This plant is included in the potential sale, leading to further uncertainty for the hundreds of workers in the region. 
Last week, the Victorian branch of the TWU issued notice it would take strike action against two private bus contractors, Christians, which operates out of the regional city of Bendigo, and Cranbourne Transit in Melbourne's southeast. The action was set to commence on Monday the 23rd. However, late on the 19th, the union issued a press release declaring victory at both companies. The union says the threat of strike action has broken the deadlock at both companies after negotiations had stalled and has led to offers which include strong wage growth without undercutting existing conditions. In one case, Cranbourne Transit, the company had refused to negotiate at all until the Fair Work Commission forced them into it in May this year. These agreements appear to be the tail end of the TWU's campaign to lift wages and conditions for Victorian bus drivers. The campaign, including several work stoppages, has seen significant wage growth and increases to superannuation, being won at some of Melbourne's largest bus contractors. In other news out of the Victorian TWU, the union is heralding recent changes to the Owner Drivers and Forestry Contractors Act, which will make it easier for owner drivers to resolve disputes with their employers. The changes are also being described as a win for workers in the gig economy, with companies like Uber Freight now falling under the legislation for the first time. More information about the laws and the changes that have been made can be found on the TWU's website, which is www.twu.asn.au. Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has come under fire this week after he was awarded a more than 11% pay increase by the state's independent remuneration panel. Unions have called the government hypocritical, comparing the leader's increase with the official wages policy of the government. The lowest increase for Victorians' politicians was 3.5% for backbenchers. However, this is still a lot higher than the wages policy that mandates public servants not receive increases of more than 2%. Paramedics have stepped up their campaign against the government, seizing on the figures to point out that Victoria now has the highest paid Premier, but the lowest paid paramedics. The government faces growing opposition from unions across the public sector who are seeking wage increases above the official cap. The pay increase for politicians is their second in less than six months, with an automatic 2.9% increase applied in July, adjusting for inflation. Organised worker action continues to grow at tech and logistics giant Amazon, this time amongst its corporate staff, with thousands of workers walking off the job last Friday around the world as part of the climate strike. A group within the company has been pressuring Amazon CEO and world's richest man, Jeff Bezos, to commit to stronger action on climate change. The pressure seems to be working, with the billionaire announcing the day before the strike that the company would bring forward its pledge for carbon neutrality by 10 years. However, the workers said that this was not enough and still left work to march, saying that a target of carbon neutrality by 2040 was not good enough and that the company must take stronger action. Still in the US, more than 40,000 members of the United Auto Workers maintain their picket lines across General Motors, shutting down 33 plants and 22 warehouses. The strike is now in its second week, and strikers have been supported by a number of unions, particularly the Teamsters, who have pledged not to transport any GM cars that had not already been delivered to showrooms. Elsewhere in the states, nurses have also walked out at a number of hospitals across the country. 6,500 nurses at 12 private hospitals stopped work for a day in Arizona, California and Florida. Their demands were for higher wages and better staff ratios. Their claims were mirrored by the more than 2,000 nurses at the University of Chicago's medical center, who also took strike action on Friday. Workers there described the conditions where short staffing means that many are forced to work overtime, even after having worked their regular 12-hour shifts. The use of strike breakers there means that their planned 24-hour strike has now become a five-day lockout. 
And finally, there's been a long-awaited win for Aboriginal health practitioners in the Northern Territory. After a 13-year-long campaign, workers have finally voted up their very first enterprise agreement. Their union, United Voice, has welcomed the deal, which they say will, for the first time, create a career and classification structure that cannot be changed at the whim of a government official, giving these workers a real say in their workplaces. Red alert. Numbers are needed at the Japarung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japarung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarung traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarung country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. And you're listening to 3CR. We're jumping straight into the next interview. We have Jennifer on the line from the Democratic Overseas uh, Chinese Group. Good morning, Jennifer. Good morning. Good morning. Um, so I walked past your protest yesterday. Could you kind of um, give us, just out the front of the State Library, um, could you just give us kind of an overview of what you guys were protesting and what your group's um, kind of main idea is? Yeah, um, most uh, honestly, um, I, we have uh, we protested yesterday as the 1st of October. Um, the CCP regime claimed it's their 70th year's anniversary of their, um, to celebrate um, that anniversary. But we, um, as the Democrat Chinese, um, we think it's, um, I think we think um, this is not a celebration day. It's actually a national remembrance day or a national martyr day mm-hmm. because um, the CCP regime is totally established in, you know, when in, back in 1949 and built on actually crimes, bruta- uh, brutalities, lies, suppressions and the slavery of that it's uh, 1.4 billion people. So that is nothing um, to celebrate, but to be shameful. Absolutely. And can you tell us a little bit about how um, your group has formed or come together? Um, we are just the um, we are the people. Most of us already citizens of Australia, and um, we just uh, descent. We just we obviously we are the descent of current CCP uh, regime mm. in, in China. And when we came uh, landing Australia, we um, enjoyed the democracy and democratic um, um, process in Australia. And um, the more we, um, we we found the truth about um, differently what we've been uh, educated um, back in China, the more we found um, um, that we've been cheated. So. We are the people that um, uh, 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 are coming along as various um, uh, uh, occasions. For example, when Liu Xiaobo, um, you know, the the, the, the Chinese only Nobel Peace um, winners died mm-hmm. um, uh, in the prison, um, we actually um, um, gathered um, in front of the library again. So mm-hmm. we are the people that um, uh, wouldn't. 
uh, wouldn't celebrate today, you know, yesterday as a national um, celebration day. Mm. And one of the things uh, your group discusses is uh, China's uh, interference within other countries, uh, especially I was listening to one of your speakers yesterday talking about the interference within Hong Kong. Now, we've just seen an escalation uh, with one protester shot yesterday by Hong Kong uh, police forces. Correct. Could you kind Correct. of give us kind of a little bit of sense of what your protest or your discussion was around this? Um, we all know that... Um the Hong Kong protests start 9th of June, so it's already 17 consecutive weeks now. And the government, um, like Harry Lam, the, the Hong Kong leader, um, trying to pretending to listen to what the the, um, the Hong Kongers want to express, but it's throughout the 17 weeks. The, the, the Hong Kongers, millions of people have demonstrated on the street. They have expressed themselves very well. They want, uh, they want their true, the main thing I think they want their true voting rights back to them and they want the, um, the uh, Hong Kong leaders to listen to the Hong Kong people's, um, 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 their uh, ideas that are not be the puppet of the CCP regime China. Mm. And yeah, it's very sad. And yesterday, I I, I saw the uh, video that um, uh, one young guy in Hong Kong was shot. I think dead is it? Mm. Uh, shot yes, shot died, in the yes. uh, left chest, uh, um, and it's with the real bad, uh, bullet. So, mm. the, so now, uh, CCP um, China has CCP regime has started brutalities in Hong Kong already. Like. 30 years ago in mm. Tiananmen Square. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Hi, this is Rob. I just had a question for you. With the, the protest, do you ever see these, like at the moment it just seems like they're continuing on and on and on. What do you think it'll take for the protest to actually finish if you think they will ever finish? You mean Hong Kong? Yes. Um, well, the, the, the real the solution is really... Um, it's 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 now the boys actually now at um, the CCP court um, whether they allow Hong Kong people to vote their true leaders they all their parliament um, uh, members are uh, are truly voted by one vote one card you know mm. but I don't think that's going to happen um, in the real in the in the real situation it, they don't they won't allow um, they won't allow people to vote people that against CCP or doesn't pro um, CCP. So I don't think that's going to happen. So that's why we also discussed yesterday after mm. the, um, the meeting. And I think the, 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 um, the reality is for Hong Kong people to um, ending this, uh, end this um, demonstration on the street. I mean, one is very serious, um, you know, very Yes, and um, it's cost people life, and mm. they're you know um, they can um, be injured. Everything. I think the real situation is they form um, a shadow a government um, themselves, like they um, they vote their own leaders themselves. So it's like a, a Valerena, you know, um, uh, situation. Absolutely. And touching on um, kind of also your discussion around what's happening in Australia. Now, your group um, yesterday was very much protesting and saying that uh, we need to be wary of Chinese interference. Could you kind of briefly give us um, kind of also your main message you want to get out to the Australian public? Oh, yes. Um, 
it is uh, I mean in the Chinese society it is very interesting um, when we look at um, uh, we are just uh, we are very minor minority groups because majority of groups they still believe they should celebrate yesterday as national day and they are very take a very pride of it mm. I understand from their point of view but if they really look at the history of um, the CCP history um, um, and they really want to understand the, the, the truth mm. and the myths to clear the myths um, that is very very um, obvious but um, the thing is they are already Australian citizens they are already um, mm. um, you know uh, settled here very, very 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 long time 40 years 50 years mm. um, and even some of them are from um, uh, are, are those overseas Chinese? They settled in Vietnam or Cambodia, and during you know 1970s um, when um, the Chinese, uh, not Chinese, the uh, Communist parties in their country um, have to you know um, to persecuted them, and they fled out to Australia. But but 40, 50 years later, they still um, believe. You know, believe in CCP, which is causing, um, you know, um, Australian in Australian politics um, lives are, mm. are difficult for even someone if they want to come up in, you know, in the in the political field to mm. um, say um, they have to be sure that um, you know people won't uh, vote against them because they are doesn't they doesn't um, like CCP they doesn't support the CCP. Right, so gotcha. this, is, this, is, this is a major um, influence that I can saw. And also, um, um, and also the current CCP, um, is, um, you know, infiltrations into Australian political, that's another concern as well. That we talk about people moving in, um, like Huang Xiaomu, about in, in about 10 years' time, you know, this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And um, just mentioning, touching on that, there were individuals who were yelling um, things against your protest. Are you ever kind of worried about this backlash um, from uh, other people in your community or in the community? Oh, that's very, that's why I'm saying that that's very mm. uh, common. It is yeah. the majority, majority of them, whether they are overseas, fresh boat students, or they've been here settled very, very long time, 30, okay. 40, you know, 50 years. Yeah, all right. Uh, um, so, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I suppose the last question is, um, if anyone is interested in kind of getting involved in your group or within these demonstrations, uh, what, who are you kind of, uh, are you looking for anyone to get involved and how would they kind of get involved if they're interested? Oh, obviously, um, I urged all our, our Australian fellows to be, uh, pay attention to this when, I mean, uh, of course they can contact me or they can contact, um, we have um, a gentleman uh, who had published a Tiananmen Square, a Tiananmen, um, Tiananmen Square newspaper, mm. which you can get um, very easily um, at um, a lot of um, uh, Chinese grocery shops or even in the Box Hill Center. Um, okay. they, they have put in all, all the um, uh, newspapers for free to take. Um, of, of course, it's in um, Chinese. Um, but we, I, the message I want to give all Australian uh, fellows is, when you're dealing with, um, you know, Chinese like me or uh, heritage Chinese, uh, the question 
you don't um you the best the best question is on the is ask them um what's their view about you know nineteen eighty nine Tiananmen squares and uh, what about the view about the Hong Kong protesting at the moment mm. and um and what about the view about uh, the um um u s had a trade um ratification i think um right. towards to chinese CCP at the moment. So in that question, in this kind of question, distinguish um, people who are pro-CCP or who are against the CCP. So uh, that's just give you a broad <laughs> broad um, guideline to, well, you know, to distinguish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on and talking to us more about this. And we'll be sure to touch in back with you uh, soon enough. Okay. Yeah. Thank, thank you. you. And that was Jennifer talking uh, about kind of CCP and interference and all that sort of mm-hmm. stuff. It was interesting. I kind of was looking for stories yesterday, walked up to the State Library and was like, oh, look, story. <laughs> um, so touching on that, we're just running up to 8.27. So I'll give you a quick reminder of what we've had on the show. We've had some um, youth Indigenous uh, climate activists, uh, Autumn Patilia and Shutez uh, Katanachu. Uh, speaking at the UN and kind of the discussions around that. And I don't know, it was, it was a fun discussion talking about who does the future belong to. Mm. We also had Susan Harter from the um, ACF, the Australian Conservation Foundation, uh, also talking about this whole question in the climate summits to come out of it and potential agreements that might might herald some political and business kind of movement on climate change. I don't know, hopefully. And then finally, we are just talking to Jennifer. Yeah, and in terms of the weather for today, Ooh. it's... Can't forget the weather. Uh, 16 degrees at the moment with a top of 24 and nice and sunny. So we finish our shows, Lois, with um, what we're grateful for, mm-hmm. which is a little practice Will and I brought in. Um, would you like to kick us off? What are you grateful for this week? Oh, good question. This week? Um, I think I'm grateful. This week, I think I'm grateful for uh, my local library. I recently joined a new library and discovered that they have the best uh, digital resource kind of page mm-hmm. and new releases. Mm, that's mm. funky. How about you, Rob? I am grateful for beanbags. Um, <laughs> partly because it's, like, it's a nice way just to, to chill, read new digital content, or sit in the <laughs> library. Absolutely. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm going to say I'm grateful for cleaners. Mm. I don't know it's just how much of an invisible part of our society they are. Mm. Um, uh, they're very forgotten, and I want to change that. I want to, want to change that narrative. Anyway, <laughs> so that's what I'm grateful for. Apart from that, have a lovely, Wednesday, looking to be a really sunny day. Yeah, thank you to Earth Matters who are before us and Stick Together who are after us. Rob, you legend. Enjoy the rest of your day, guys. Six years I've been in Beyond the Bars is 3CR's annual prison project, giving voice to our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander inmates right across Victoria. It's good to be here because uh, Aboriginal radio and um, you don't really get to do this much. Theresa so Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. Describe.